The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. And when you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. If you're listening to my show, you're looking for tips on how to work smarter, not harder. And let's be real. You're already working hard to earn your money. But how do you make sure that your money is working hard for you? Here's how. With a Betterment automated investment and savings app, your money will go to work. They've got technology that will provide you with advanced tools and they're built to help maximize your returns, not to mention your time. They have expert built portfolios of low cost exchange traded funds. You know, I love those exchange traded funds. There's automated investing technology. And as part of that automated rebalancing, many of you have been asking about rebalancing and it sort of feels like a hard thing to do on your own with Betterment. Easy peasy. They do it for you. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Welcome to the Jill on Money Show. It is Saturday, November 12th, and we have a delightful guest for this week, and you're going to love this. It is Annie Duke. She has been on the program a couple of times. You may know her from her amazing book called Thinking in Bets. Annie was a professional gambler. She was a professional poker player, but she started her career actually as an academic, and it's such a fascinating trajectory of her life. So she was like a decision-making scientist or something, and she took some time off, and she was playing poker, and she was really good at it. And so what she does is she has got behavioral science and lots of analysis to explain lots of different trends in our lives. And in her new book, Quit, she is talking about the power of knowing when to walk away. I think you're really going to like this. I think that many times that you guys are asking us these kinds of questions, this is kind of the science behind why we do and do not make the decisions that are often in our best interest. Here is part one of our interview with Annie Duke. So why did you decide you wanted to tackle this topic? Oh, gosh, you know, I mean, I I think that the the main reason I wanted to tackle the topic is that I, I think that there's just a misconception about grit, which is that grit is good, full stop, period. In other words, that if you stick to things and you persevere, that that is a sign of character. You know, we think about, uh, you know, quitters never win and winners never quit. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. That's just not so. It's actually the case that you want to stick to things that are worthwhile 
and quit everything else. And that's actually the true road to success. So I just felt like somebody needed to have a conversation with grit, which was about the other side of the coin that grit is a virtue, but so is quitting a virtue as well. Why is quitting get such a bad rap, do you think? Well, I think there's a variety of reasons. I I think it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg problem. Mm. So uh, let me tell you what the chicken is, and then I'll tell you what the egg is. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for that definitional (laughs) moment. Yeah, because I don't, I don't, I don't know which causes which. So uh, the chicken is that uh, there's a really wide variety of cognitive biases that could be sort of wrapped up under this idea of buying biasing us against quitting. So the most famous of those would be the sunk cost effect, which we know from, for example, you know, investors. If you know, if you buy a stock at fifty and it's now trading at forty, you will make a different decision about whether to hold that than you would if you were just looking at the stock fresh. In other words, the $10 that you've already invested in it or that you've already lost in it affects your decision about whether to continue to hold it. Now, obviously that's an error because if you weren't gonna buy it today, you shouldn't hold it at 50 just because you quote unquote wanna get your money back. And that sunk cost effect sort of goes across a lot of different things. Like people don't wanna quit jobs because they don't wanna waste all the time or energy or training or whatever that they've put into it, of course, that causes you to maybe waste some things going forward. In other words, to hold stocks or, or jobs or whatever it is that you wouldn't hold if you were coming to the decision fresh. So there's a variety of biases like that, the sunk cost fallacy, endowment effect, omission, commission bias, status quo bias, opportunity cost neglect, so on and so forth, that really bias us against quitting. So that's the chicken. But then the egg part is that when we think about the sort of narratives that we tell, who are the heroes of the story? The heroes of our stories are the people who persevere. They're the ones who stick it out through hard times. And we can see this even with like the startup founder who got down to no money and, you know, everybody was telling them to shut it down, but they kept going and turned the company into a success or the people who continue up the mountain in snowstorms, you know, and triumph. Or even, interestingly enough, the people who continue up the mountain under really horrible conditions and perish are often the heroes of our stories. And that's reflected in the language. When you look at the synonyms for sticking it out or grit, they're they're really positive. You know, you're showing metal, uh, it, character. I mean, character is synonymous with grit. We think when we tell our children not to quit things that we're helping them to build character. But when we think about the synonyms for quit, well, I mean, I'll put it to you this way, Jill. If I called you a quitter, would you think I was complimenting you? Right, exactly. And I think that like the story of the Everest climb is one that I just want to spend a little bit of time around. And everyone, you had to buy this book because it's very compelling. And I know we're talking about behavioral economics, but there are stories and it's engaging. And the engaging story that you tell around Everest has to do with this concept of turnaround times. Now, these are basically, I mean, I'm not a climber, but it makes sense. Like if I'm not at a certain point by a certain time, I've got to turn around because it's dangerous. Talk about what happened on this particular climb that you uh, cover in the beginning of the book. Yeah. So I really wanted to open the book with Everest because I feel like Everest is kind of like a symbol of grit. Right. Like think yeah. how gritty you have to be to climb 29,000 some feet. Right. Up Completely crazy and gritty, I guess. <laughs> I would say so. Yes, right. exactly. 
you know, so I, I think that when we think about stories about Everest, you know, Sir Edmund Hillary or whoever, you know, that we're, we're talking about stories of grit. And I, I felt that someone should really a story, tell a story about quitting uh, that happened on Everest too, because like I really wanted to balance it out. So um, this story is about Dr. Stuart Hutchinson, John Tasky, and Dr. Luke Kasitsky. And they were part of one of these climbing ex- expeditions. As you'll recall, Jill, in the 90s, these things became very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, I think it cost about seventy or $75,000 to join one of these expeditions in about nine months worth of training time. And so they were part of an expedition of eight climbers, clients, uh, three climbing Sherpas, and an expedition leader. And as you said, for each day's climb, they would set a turnaround time. And for summit day, where you're climbing from Camp 4, so you're already very high up the mountain, the turnaround time is 1 p.m. And the reason for that is that if you descend the mountain in darkness from the summit, it's incredibly dangerous, particularly because you have to cross a part of the mountain called the Southeast Ridge, which is very, very narrow. If you do not do that successfully, you will fall to your death either all the way into Nepal or all the way into Tibet. Neither of those things, I assume, would be something desirable to you. And so climbers before you have figured out that uh, if you're not to the summit by 1 p.m. and you get there afterwards, you're just too likely to descend the, the mountain in darkness and it's just too dangerous. And the chances that you have, you know, a really bad outcome, maybe death has gotten too high. So the expedition leader has impressed upon his group that when they leave uh, for summit day from camp four, that the turnaround time is 1 p.m. No matter where they are in the mountain, they're supposed to turn around at 1 p.m., summit or not. So um, our climbers set out, and this was a time, as I said, in the 90s when these expeditions had gotten quite popular. So it wasn't just these eight climbers, the three climbing Sherpas and the expedition leader who were climbing. There were over 30 people on that mountain. And there, it's kind of like a one you know, single lane road as you're going up to the summit. So you're, you're really subject to how fast the people in front of you are going. And it was slow. There was basically a traffic jam on the mountain that day. So uh, Hutchinson recognized that it was going pretty slow. And the expedition leader came up behind him. And he just asked the expedition leader, hey, how long do you think it's going to be until we get to the summit? The expedition leader told him about three hours, mm-hmm. and then scurried on ahead to try to make up time. Hutchinson holds Tasky and Kasitsky back and says, oh, I think we really have a problem here because if it's three hours to the summit, I'm looking at my watch, it's almost 11.30 a.m. right now. So it seems to me that we're only we're gonna get to the summit around 2.30, even if we were to really speed up, we'll get there at 2 p.m. Hmm. And that's well past the turnaround time. So if we're supposed to turn around no matter where we are at 1 p.m., it seems to me we should turn around now because there's no way we're gonna make it to the summit. So it, it took a little convincing, but Tasky and Kasitsky did agree. Right. And the three of them turned around and they went back to camp four and they lived. See, but that's the thing that's so weird because there's like always seems this like binary choice and um, which is, you know, you made it or you didn't make it. And right. maybe the binary choice should be like, well, you live. That could be our first thing. Like <laughs> yes. living would be good. You, getting back down the mountain should actually be the goal. <laughs> right. And I found that kind of interesting that, you know, you we tell ourselves stories. Of, and as you say, you know, the, obviously Angela Duckworth kind of popularized this idea of grit. But even before her, there's this sense that like, oh, I've not just put in all this time, but I've, you know, also created like a whole space. There's so much energy that I've put into this endeavor, which is getting up this mountain. And all of a sudden you reframe this as uh, you failed, but you didn't fail. You lived. So living 
Again, that would seem to me like the first part. And the second part would be like, okay, presuming I can live, then I hope I get up this mountain. And as you say, it it plays out in lots of different areas. It just seemed so dramatic because in this case, it was life or death. Yeah. So as you said, like, look, when we think about the sunk cost effect, right, you've put $75,000 into the cause, you spent nine months training, you've gotten so far. If you turn around now, doesn't that mean that you'll have wasted all of that? So that's that's one problem, right? Of course, that's thinking about waste as a backward-looking problem because if it's a bad decision to continue going forward, that would be the real waste. In this case, probably a waste of human life, right? So so we need to you know sort of switch the way that we think about that. Those costs are already sunk. That's why it's called the sunk cost fallacy. But it's creating friction uh, that makes us want to continue. The other thing that you pointed out is that. We have this really perverse way at looking at goals that we have. So the summit is obviously the goal. At this point, these climbers are about 300 feet from the summit. And we think about them as having failed. Never mind that they climbed 29,000 feet into the air, something that almost nobody has ever done. That doesn't really count for anything. So we measure ourselves against how short we are of the goal, not how far we are from the starting line right? Which in their case is very, very far. And I I think you can intuit this. Like, obviously, if you run 20 miles of a marathon, you'll think of yourself as a failure. And it will feel worse to you than never having started a marathon at all. Never mind that you won 20, you know, you ran 20 more miles than the person who never started. So this is also like one of these forces. And then you also have this problem, not just of feeling like, well, if I stop now, I will have failed, right? that makes it really hard for us, but also these what ifs. What if I had continued up the mountain? That I think that's really hard for us. What if I had stayed in that job? What if I had stayed in that relationship? What if I hadn't shut my startup down? What if I had kept running? And I think that those what ifs are really hard for us and they're particularly hard for us in the situation for these three climbers when people did continue up the mountain. Because what if, in that moment where you're trying to decide, what if they all make it successfully there? And I just feel like an idiot for having turned around. So think about how courageous it was. I mean, it's interesting that you compare it also to your your career as a professional poker player. There are plenty of hands where your rules or the way that you think about probability would say, okay, you're done. Get out. You're quitting this, right? And then um, you tell the funny story where you're like, you know, sitting at a table where a professional player turns to you and says, you know, like after watching the hand come out, you're like, oh, crap, I could have I could have actually won that, but that wouldn't have been the prudent choice. I thought it was kind of intriguing to me, this idea around um, quitting in a job where you were talking to a doctor and I've heard so many of these stories, okay, where people will call the program up and say, you know, I've been a healthcare worker, I've been a teacher and I just like, I I need permission to quit. They're asking me permission. They want to know like financially, am I okay? And, you know, listen, there are times where I say you can totally do it. And if you were to stay two more years, that pension does get a little fatter, but you could do it. And I always will say, like, are you miserable? And there are some people who say, yeah, I am. Can you just tell the story about your the way that you approached this doctor where you said, like, imagine a year from now. So play that out so people can ask themselves and get into this, like, understand the probability and the application of statistics to a big decision like, I'm going to quit or make a career change. Yeah, absolutely. So a woman named Sarah Olson Martinez contacted me and 
she was facing a decision about whether to quit her job. So she was uh, an emergency medicine doctor, uh, had worked, you know, in the ER. That's where her training was. But she had also been promoted to an administrative position. So by the time she contacts me, she's actually only doing six shifts a month in the ER and the rest of her time is administrative work. Now, I was in the middle of writing a book called Quit. So I was like, hey, do you want to get on a Zoom? <laughs> this is good. Oh, you're a great character. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I just, I was like, I really wanted to hear her story because I was obviously thinking deeply about it and thinking, oh, this might be interesting for the book. So yeah, so she's telling me about her job and, you know, that when she was, you know, working in the ER, it was really shift work. So while the work was really hard, it was also fulfilling. And at the end of your shift, you were done. Like you went home, your work didn't come home with you. But the administrative work was not like that. It was kind of 24-7, you know, calls, emails, texts, putting out fires, like having to answer questions. And that um, she had two young children and it was really Im negatively impacting her relationship with her kids. And at that point, she described herself as miserable, not only miserable, but having been miserable for quite a, some time, like a few years. You know, unlike many people who are facing these, she actually had another job that she had already been offered. So she's in, she's in a superior position to many people who are thinking about quitting because she knows there's another opportunity available to her and it's to uh, evaluate cases for an insurance company. So when she's telling me all this, as you might imagine, Jill, I'm, I'm slightly confused as to why she's asking me about whether she should quit because she's miserable for years and she has another job offer available to her. So I asked her and I said, well, so what's stopping you from quitting? Like what, what is it that's holding you back from this new job? And she said something really interesting. She said, what if I take the new job and I hate it? This was so interesting to me. So I said to her, okay, well, let me ask you this. Imagine it's a year from now and you stay in your current position. What's the probability that you'll be happy? And she said 0%. Because she knew she, she'd been unhappy forever, right? So she knew she was going to be unhappy. So I said, well, what's the probability if you take this new job? Now imagine that it's a year from now. Like, what's the probability you're happy? And she said, yeah, I'm not sure. Probably 50-50. I said, well, it's 50% greater than zero. And she <gasps> I said, love that. Yes. And she quit the next day. And the last time I checked, she's actually quite happy. That's so, amazing. Yeah. And, and I think that it brings up this really important kind of asymmetry in the way that we think. You know, investors can experience something called loss aversion. We, we can experience this everywhere, which is just that when we're deciding whether we want, you know, we want to enter into an investment, we focus on the downside. Like, what if it doesn't work out? What if I lose my money? And it can cause us to choose uh, investments that have a lower expected value. In other words, you can't lose very much, but also what goes along with that is you can't win very much. In other words, they're very low volatility. We'll prefer that over something where you could actually win quite a bit, but there's maybe a, a greater loss that might be associated with it. So loss aversion is a very common problem. But what's interesting is that loss aversion is asymmetric. We recruit it much more strongly for things that we're starting. We don't recruit it in the same way for things that we're continuing, that we've already started. So you can see this with Olsen Martinez, right? Like there was a really good chance of a bad outcome from staying with what she was doing. But when I asked her what was bothering her, it was the chance of loss at the thing, the new thing that she might start. So now we see the problem with quitting, right? Is that there's all sorts of forces like sunk costs. Because she said, like, I've trained so much in 
this and so so that, that sort of make us stick to the thing that we're doing. But then also we don't want to start new things for fear that we might lose, even when the chances of a worse outcome are much, much smaller than the chances of a worse outcome from the thing that we're already doing. And you can see that coming out in Olsen Martinez's story. So all I did was refocus her and just get her to see that, look, you have a much better chance of being happy if you switch to the new thing. And once once I kind of got her to see the opportunity cost, what she was giving up by not taking the new job, she switched. Okay, we'll do part two of our interview with Annie Duke tomorrow. If you've got a financial question, if you want to know whether you should quit, give us a holler. Go to our website, jillonmoney.com. Click the contact us button. Of course, let us know if you'd be willing to come on the air. While you're on the website, check out the blog, check out all the resources and pre-order my new book. It's called The Great Money Reset. We thank you so much for listening. Try to do something nice for someone else today. Grit, growth, grace. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.